Um, we're continuing uh, to, to kind of take our overview through Job. And as we've been taking our, our fly over Job and we've been looking at hard questions, why do bad things happen to good people? What good is faith in the midst of hard things? Why in the world would we have hope when everything seems so hopeless? And as those questions continue to come, we've seen in the book of Job that uh, so far, while we may have found a little hope and we may have found uh, a little peace, that what we haven't had yet are answers. We haven't had God telling us why bad things happen. We haven't had God telling us why, even though he's in control, seemingly things will, will fall apart. And so we continue today, and we have to look at these questions. Is God in control? I mean, you know my answer to that. My answer is, of course, God's in control. But is he really? Is he sovereign? That's all sovereign means, by the way. It's the fancy word for in control. If God is sovereign, he is in control of all things. But if he's in control of all things then why are we living in this mess? And what you've got there is, is you've got what uh, St. Augustine would have said um, presents as the apparent proof of atheism. If God is all good, then God would will all good and nothing evil. Makes sense, right? As a statement all by itself, we would think that makes sense. If God is all good, right, then it would seem like what God would will would be all good. If God is all powerful, then it seems like God would be able to have what he wills. But we live in a world where evil exists. And so therefore... The apparent proof of atheism says, because evil exists, God either isn't all good, or he isn't all powerful, or both. And so what they would tell you, unapologetically and evangelically, they would tell you that God does not exist. Or at least, not the God of the Bible. But I've been telling you for eight and a half years now that there is a sovereign God who is good and who loves you and who does exist, even in the face of evil. And so what we have to do is what Job had to do. We have to reconcile a sovereign and a good God with evil that happens in the world. And we have to do it in a way that is not a Sunday school answer. Because these are real questions that people have. These are real questions that you've probably had. These are real questions that if they go unanswered, will do damage to your faith. And I'm sure you know people, people that you love, people that you desperately want to know and respond to the truth, and these questions have done real damage to their faith. So we've got to figure this out. There, there is a book uh, called Case for Faith 
Lee Strobel, if you haven't read it, it's, it's, it's worth a read, uh, where he examines questions people have about faith. And, and the question of evil is one of the things he examines. But in the book, he tells the story of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton um, was Billy Graham's preaching partner early in his ministry. Early in Billy Graham's ministry, they were friends, and they were preaching partners, and they would go on revivals and crusades together. And then Charles Templeton left the faith, rejected God, became what he called a staunch atheist. I know you're thinking, well, what hope is there for me? Like, I can listen to Billy Graham on the radio, and I think that's pretty cool, but he was actually there preaching with him. Um, And he left the faith and became a staunch atheist. Um, Later in his life, had the opportunity to be interviewed, and, and, and the question was asked, why? Why did you end up rejecting God. And, and, and here's what he said. Let me, I'm just going to read it to you so you can, you can hear it firsthand. He said, it was all because of a picture in Time magazine. There was a picture of a black woman from North Africa. They were experiencing a drought and she was holding a dead baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at the picture and thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain. How could a loving God do this to that woman? Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. He does. Or so that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew that it was not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There is no way. I'm wondering if you've had questions like that. Or if you know people that have had questions like that. Because that evidence feels damning. It feels heavy. It feels weighty. And so we're left trying to figure out, are we just pretending? Are we just trying to make ourselves feel better? Or is this loving, caring, sovereign God really real? And so this is what we we work through, right? Uh, And and you know where Job stands, by the way, right? We've talked about this. You know where Job stands. Look what Job says in, in Job 1, 20 to 21. Job stood up and he tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and he fell to the ground. For what? To worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. See, Job has no issues believing that God is actually sovereign, that God is actually in control. Right? He has no problem believing that God is in control. He says, listen, everything I had was given to me by God. Everything I have Um, comes to me from God. When I came in this world, I was naked. I had nothing. God gave me. And this God that's in control, he took it away. Job has no problem believing that God is in control. Also, he has no problem believing that God is good. What's he say? How's he end it? Praise the name of the Lord. 
And, and I, I want you to sit in that for a second, right? Because this is, this is not me telling you in the middle of your experience, I know bad things happen to you, but just have faith. God's good. He's in control. I promise. And I've told many of you that. I have told many of you that I don't have an explanation for you, but to keep your faith that God is good and God is in control. And I hope not, but I worry a lot of times that maybe that comes across as trite or superficial. One of the things I thought about in, in prepping for this series, even going back six months and thinking about this series, but then especially since I knew it was going to be my last like, I wanted to really guard against giving you trite and superficial answers to why these things happen. Because I don't know why these things happen. By the way, neither do you. Stop helping. That's a terrible thing. And it's so well-intentioned. But stop helping. Because you're not helping, you're hurting. When you, when you decide that you can tell people why things have happened, then, <laughs> I don't know, it... it, it I get it. You do it because you're trying to make somebody feel better in the moment, but it doesn't make them feel better. All it does is add on. Like I can, there are so many things I've heard standing in the line at funerals, right? Or sitting in hospitals, so many well-intentioned statements of, well, you know, God needed this. God needed another angel in heaven, right? So we took him. No, that's not how that works, right? It's not what that is. Stop helping. Anyway, side note, deal with it. Like, you're almost done with me, so just deal with the little tangents, and it'll be okay. But here's the thing. When Job tells you, when Job tells you, in the midst of losing all of his children, his seven sons, his his three daughters, dead. Losing all of his financial wealth and means of income, destitute. Losing his health, his body is literally um, oozing life from him. As he sits there in grief, when I tell you, hey, listen, God's in control and he's still good, it's academic. When Job tells you, Naked I came. Naked I'll go. God gave and God took away. And at the end of the day, praise the name of God. That should mean something to you. And so when you sit in your grief and in those hard things, when you're sitting there, I want to encourage you, right, that, that there are people that have been there before you. And they have come through this. It's one thing for me to tell you. But you might look at me and you might say, yeah, but what, what does he know? What does he know of grief? Well, I know plenty of grief. I just don't always tell you about it. But you might look at me and you might say, what, what do you know about grief? I can tell you this. Job knows a lot about grief. Job knows a lot about pain. Job knows a lot about evil. Job knows a lot about intense suffering. And at the height of it, naked I came, naked I'll go. God gave, 
God takes, but still praise the name of God. I can tell you that you do not have to give up. There is hope on the other side of it. All right, so we're going to look. We're going to look at these two questions. Is God in control, and what does he have to say about that? And is God good, and, and what does that leave us with at the end of the day? You know, that, that Job asks God, I think we talked about this last week, he asked God why 35 times. 35 times in this book, he asks God why. Job wants to know why. He's not questioning God. Well, I mean, he's a little bit questioning God, but he, he's not... He's not shaming God or blaspheming God. He's saying, God, why? He's like, I get it, right? Naked I came, naked I'll go. You gave, you took away. I'm going to praise your name. But why? Why is it happening? Are you really in control? Are you really good? Do you really love me? Are you there? And you've got those questions too, right? I mean, I think about some of the things that we've been through together as a congregation, right? Some of the expectant pregnancies that ended in miscarriage. Some of the routine checkups that came with cancer. The heart attacks. The strokes that came out of nowhere. I mean, I've sat with, sat with you um, in, in hospitals as you've lost spouses even worse as you've lost your children? Why? See, that's what happens, right? We want to know why. And, and eventually, the questions of why, they leak out. Like, it's this, it's this thing that builds in intensity when you want an answer and you're not getting an answer. Think about your kids. Why? 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 And the more you put them off, the louder they get. And the more incessantly they ask. And it feels kind of annoying. And we used to play that game at my house all the time. Why? And you'd start with an answer. Well, why? And you'd give another answer. Well, why? And we'd always get to the end where it was because that's the way God made it. Because I have no more answers for you. And Job has no more answers either. And he asks God 35 times why. And God finally answers. But he doesn't answer the way Job thinks he wants. See, here's what happens. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. This is Job 38. We're going to look into 39. We're not going to see all of this for time's sake. I've just picked out a few things to highlight. Then the Lord answered Job from a whirlwind. Who is it? that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words. Who's questioning? This is God asking, who do you think you are, O little created being, that you are questioning the creator of everything, including you? Who is it that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? And then he says this thing, brace yourself like what? like a man, because that's all you are. Now, this is not saying that that God has um, a small view of humanity. God has a tremendous view of humanity. God crafted mankind in his own image. He breathed life into Adam. This isn't mythology. This is fact, right? I, I don't care what 
progressive Bible reading will tell you this, this is fact. God formed Adam out of dust and dirt and breathed life into him intimately, carefully, creating him in his own image. He took parts of the man and he intimately, carefully, wonderfully created woman out of man. God creating humanity in his own image. God loves humanity. God doesn't feel like humanity is low. He has given us a lofty position. Word tells us he's made us just a little lower than the angels for a time. And that we will be co-heirs with Christ. And that we will be like him and we will be with him for all eternity as Christians when we follow Jesus in heaven. Like these, these are realities, right? So, so God isn't saying, God isn't saying humanity is, is beneath me and below me. What God is saying, saying here to Job, saying it very clearly, is that I am the creator. You are part of my creation. Don't you think I know what I'm doing? And honestly, Job didn't think it. Job never badmouthed God. Job questioned. He asked why. But Job didn't necessarily think that God knew what he was doing. But this is God saying, hey, who is it that questions me with such ignorance? Brace yourself like a man. Because that's what you are. I'm here. I created everything, including you. Brace yourself like a man. And I've got some questions for you, and you're going to have to answer them. See, Job has been asking, why God, why God, why? And when God finally speaks, you know what God is not going to do? God is not going to answer that question. When you lay in bed at night, or you're crumpled on the floor, or you're kneeling at your kid's bed, or you're sitting in the hospital, or whatever it is, and you're crying out to God, why, why, why? He may answer you. More than likely, he's not going to give you the thing that you think you need. God isn't giving Job answers to why. What God is going to give Job is a very clear demonstration of the fact that he, the one who created everything, is absolutely in control of all things. Brace yourself like a man because I have questions and you're going to have to answer them. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions? Who stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstones? The morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. I was there. I created it all. I'm the one that stretched out its foundations. I'm the one that set it. I'm the one that supports it. Were you there? The obvious answer for Job is that he was not there. God says, I was there. Brace yourself, Job. I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to have to answer them. Were you there? Were you there when I created it all with the power of my voice and the sheer being of my will? No? Let's keep going. We get to 22. He says, have you visited? Job, you got questions? I got questions too. Job, I'm going to ask you questions like a man, right? Because 
you're my creation. Have you visited the rest of creation? Not just the things you can see, the things you can't. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? And then parenthetical statement. I love this part, right? This is God just throwing, oh, by the way, right? I've reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble. You can read about that in Revelation, right? I've reserved those for weapons in the time of trouble. Have you seen them? Have you seen my storehouses of snow and hail? No, didn't think so. Hey, Job, I got a question for you. Where is the path to the source of light? Where is it? How do you get on it? How do you walk it? How do you get there? Where, where is the home of the east wind? Where does it start? Where does it stop? Where does it come from? Hey, Job. Are you in charge of everything that lives and breathes on this planet? Can you stalk, pray for a lioness? Can you provide for her? Can you satisfy the young lion's appetites as they lie in their dens or crouch in the thicket? Can you provide for them? Who provides food for the ravens? When they're young, cry out to God and wander about in hunger. Who does that? Is it you, Job? No, it's not Job. Brace yourself, Job. I got questions. You got questions for me? Fine. Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Did you give it the ability to leap like a locust? Its majestic snorting is terrifying. It paws the earth and rejoices in its strength when it charges out to battle. It laughs at fear and is unafraid. It doesn't run from the sword. The arrows rattle against it and the spear and javelin, javelin flash. It it's paws the ground fiercely, rushes forward into battle when the ram's horn blows, snorts at the sound of the horn, senses the battle in the distance. It quivers at the captain's commands and the noise of the battle. He's like, hey, hey, Job. Did you create the horse? Did you, did you knit it together in that power and give it that ability? It's basically, this is God asking Job, are you the creator? Did you create these things? And, and of course, the answer ultimately is no. When we get to Job 40, and the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You're God's critic, but do you have any answers? And Job's response is, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. See, here's the thing. As individuals, as humans, right? We know what we know. And that's it. We can perceive what we can perceive and nothing more. We have our experiences to rely on to a degree, the experiences of other people. But that's it. And that's what Job had, and that's what Job was relying on. And so in his own experience, in his own idea of what's right, wrong, good, bad, in what, what it should be, he's crying out to God, why did this happen? Why would you allow this to happen? You're in control. Why? 
And I know you've asked the same question. I know you have. In some way, in some shape or form, you've asked the question of God, why? And we ask the question because we feel like it's a good and right question to ask. And in all of our being, it feels like it would be good and right for someone to give us an answer. Why? Because that's what we would want to do for someone else. When your kids ask you why, if you have the ability to answer, you're going to answer. You're going to tell them. When something happens, if you have the ability to somehow give it a solve or a bomb and to make it okay, you're going to try to do that. You're going to try to make it okay. That's your experience. And so you assume that's what you deserve and that that's what's right and that that's what's good. But here, God's, God's not obligated. Not only is God not obligated, God doesn't even pretend to answer Job's question. When Job asks why, 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 because Job feels like that's right, God's response is simply this, to remind Job that he alone is the creator and that Job is the creation. And for some of you, that feels dissatisfactory. Because it makes God seem mean. It makes God seem like he's just picking on people. For some of you, and, and, and I, it, it makes God feel a little bit like a bully. But here's the deal. Job doesn't get mad at God's response. Job responds appropriately to God's response. Job doesn't think, well, God, you're so mean and you're a bully. What he thinks is, oh, yeah. I forgot. I should have known. I'm nothing. How could I ever find the answers to those questions? God, you alone are sovereign and the creator and in control. Of course you know things I don't know. Why would I question you? Of course you know things I don't know. Of course you do. I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Job isn't saying, yeah, but God, that's not fair. Yeah, but God, you created me. Why, why should I know that stuff? You created me, but you still owe me answers. You still owe me information. You're still supposed to tell me what's going on and make it all okay in my brain and make it all work out so I can see where we're going. Job doesn't say any of those things. He says, I'm going to cover my mouth and I'm going to shut up because I said too much because you're God and I'm not. I've told you before, I've got that plaque in my kitchen. Actually, it might be in a box by now. That who's going to help me move on Sunday? You are. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but you know that today I'm going to let God be God because I suck at it? That's what the plaque says. This is what Job is finding out. It's like, oh yeah, you're God. I'm not. And all of a sudden, the need for answers for Job dissipates. It goes away. 
Like, Matt, I'm not sure why it goes away for Job. It wouldn't go away for me. I, I, I get it, right? Because the desire feels heavy. But Job wanted answers. Why, why, why? When God finally speaks, God doesn't answer the questions of why. God says, don't you remember, Job? I am God. I'm the God that loved you and took care of you then. I'm the same God now. Just because you don't understand doesn't mean I stopped being God. I'm still me. You're still you. That's where he leaves it. God is in control. You're like, okay, Matt, fine. God's in control, right? He did all of those things. He has the storehouses of hail and snow, and he laid the foundations of the earth, and he hunts food for the animals and provides for the ravens, right? He created the horse and gave it its strength and will. Like, God's done all of that. But, but why does, just because he's in control, does that mean he's good? So we have the question. It's, it's the biggest theological question that exists, period. Is God good? Why does evil happen? Listen to me. Listen really carefully. I don't know. I don't know. Why are they sick? Why did they die? Why is there upheaval in half of the world? Why is there war? Why is there famine? Why is there drought? I don't know. Why did he leave? Why was I abandoned? Why abuse? Why death? I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I know. I know that the pages of the Bible from creation and revelation to the culmination and revelation, the pages of the Bible tell the story of a sovereign God that loves you. I know that when Job had tragedy, he asked questions, he did not get answers. But yet he was satisfied in what God gave him. Which was a reminder that I'm God and you're not. So when you ask, Matt, why do bad things happen? Why is evil a thing? I can't answer the question for you. Here's what I can do. I can give you a few truths that the Bible shares that might help. I may have shared these with you before, but I'm going to give you four things that might help. They're not going to answer the question of why evil happens. I can't answer the question of why evil is happening in your life. Why, when God could have stopped it, did he choose not to? I don't know. But here's what I do know. One, I know that God is not the creator of your evil and suffering. Genesis 1.31 says that when God looked over everything he created, he said, it is very good. When God created the world, he created a world that was very good. It was free of pain. It was free of evil. It was free of sin. It was free of tragedy. It was free of heartache. It was free of sickness. It was free of death. It was free of of those things and he looked back at the end of creation and he said it is very good there is evil and pain and tragedy and suffering in this world God is not the author of it two here's what I know 
I know that suffering isn't good. God can and will use it to help accomplish his purposes. It gets misquoted and misused all too often, but in its appropriate context, Romans 8.28 is the balm that you need in your pain. It's misquoted and it's misused, but when you understand it in its context, it will soothe the burn. It is refreshment for a soul that is parched. And God will work all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. I don't know why those things happen. I know they're not good, but I know that our God will not waste them. That he will work all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And I've sat with some of you in your misery and your grief. And I know this, you love God and you are called according to his purposes. And therefore in this, I have hope. You will see God use it in a way that will make it worth it. But how, Matt? But why? I don't know. He's God. I'm not. But I know he promised. The day is coming when suffering will cease and God will judge evil. Evil will not win. There's a day coming where evil will be no more. Revelation 21 tells us about the day when God will make all things new and wipe away every tear. And you're like, Matt, why is he waiting so long? I'll tell you why he's waiting so long. I can answer that one for you because the Bible answers that one for you. Second Peter tells us that God is not being slow, but he's being patient. Why? Because there are people that need salvation. God is not being slow in coming the way we think of slowness, but God is being patient in returning. He is being patient in setting all things new for the sake of those that don't yet know him and love him and haven't surrendered to him. Because hell is real and people that we love are going there because they have not yet surrendered to Jesus. Our suffering will pale in comparison, pale in comparison to the glory that God has in store for us. Romans 8.18 paints this picture of of that what we go through now is insignificant compared to the good things and the glory that God has in store for us. I don't know how bad it is for you now, but what the word tells me, the promise tells me that what you're going through now actually will pale in comparison to what is to come. And when you are, apparently I used to say this a lot because it's, it's, one of the things that makes its way on the bingo card every now and then. Um, 50,000 years from now, what you went through today won't matter. Right now, it feels like it's the biggest thing that has ever happened to anyone or will ever happen to anyone and that your existence will never be different from this moment. But I can tell you that 50,000 years from now, it won't matter. It will not define your existence. 
You're like, Matt, that doesn't make sense to me. My brain can't comprehend that. Yeah, I know. I know it can't, but it doesn't make it less true. I think I've, I, I've probably used this example before, but you remember Alexander in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? He woke up with, uh, he went to bed with gum in his mouth and he woke up with gum in his hair. And he knew it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And when he got out of bed, he tripped on a skateboard. Um, and he accidentally dropped his favorite sweater in the sink while he was brushing his teeth. And then he went downstairs and Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. Right, and his other brother found a secret undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. And Alexander says, but in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. It's going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And that's what it was because he had to sit in the middle. He didn't get a window seat in the carpool. His teacher didn't like his picture of the invisible castle. His brothers had no cavities, but the dentist found three in his mouth. He said, come back next week, I'll fix them. Next week, I'll be in Australia. You know the story, right? The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with him. The other brother took back the Mickey Mouse pajamas he said he could keep. He lost a marble down the drain. He got soap in his eye. It's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That day happens January 1st. On January 2nd, this has been the crappiest year Andrew ever could have had. But let's just suppose that the other 364 days are spectacular. And when he goes to bed on New Year's Eve on December 31st and he looks back over his years, I'm sorry, back over his year, back over the days of the year, what will he see? Will this have been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year? Or will it have been a fantastic year with a rough day? Your life might be filled with misery. I hope not. I hope there's reprieve. But even if it's filled with misery from the moment of your birth to the moment you take your last breath, 50,000 years from now, in glory, when you look back at your existence, will it be good or not? You won't look at this then the same way you see it now. And I, I can't make it better for you necessarily. I, in the moment, I can just tell you the promise of God is that what you're going through now will pale in comparison to the glory that's to come. Job knew it, right? Job says, though he slay me, yet I still have hope. He says, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this suffering and pain and my skin is literally melting off my body. It's oozing. I know that my Redeemer lives and that after my skin is disintegrated and my flesh is decayed, I will stand before him. This is the hope we have. And I'll tell you this, right? This should not be foreign to us. Any pastor, any preacher, any author, any teacher that told you that this life was going to be awesome lied to you. 
I mean, it doesn't mean you're not going to have good times. Of course you're going to have good times, I hope. Of course you're going to have times where your life works and where you have joy and all of these things that happen the way that we desire them to happen. Of course we hope that. But there's no promise. Not during this life. Not during this earthly life. That's what Jesus said, right, in John 16. He's like, I've told you all this so that you'll have peace What does he say? Here on earth, you're going to have trials and sorrows. They're going to happen. But take heart. I've overcome this world. So it's up to us, guys, how we respond when these things happen. Charles Templeton killed his faith. And he walked away from it. Because he couldn't understand how to reconcile the good God with the evil that happens in this world. Job... Job dug into his faith because he knew that God was God and that he wasn't. Remember, we talked about those lenses. Those lenses matter. The lenses matter. All right, Charles Templeton put on his glasses and what he saw was evil and suffering. And then he tried to see everything else through lenses of evil and suffering, which meant God wasn't good and in control and not real. Job put on his glasses that said, God is in control and God is good. Therefore, whatever is happening to me, even if I hate it, even if I don't like it, even if I can't understand it, even if I'm going to push against it in my humanness, it must be okay. Because the God that's in control and the God that loves me is still in control and he still loves me, even now. So then what's left for you? What's left for you? In the middle of your grief, if I'm telling you that God's God, you're not, and that he may not give you an answer for your grief, but that it's going to be okay, you're like, okay, Matt, all of that sounds great, but what do I do now? What do I do right now? Listen, right now, in the thick of it, you do what Job did. You lament. You lament. You know what lament is, right? Unfortunately, uh, in, in our vocabulary, lament and complain have kind of become synonymous. But lament isn't complaining. Lament isn't venting. Lament is a biblical thing that has value and it has hope. What's left for you when you're in the thick of it is what was left for Job when he was in the thick of it. If you're not going to abandon God, if you're not going to run away, which by the way, listen, if I didn't make this clear, don't. Don't do that. But instead what you're going to do is you're just going to trust that God's God and that you're not and you're just going to power through. Like, okay, Matt, but how do I power through? You lament. There's power in lament. A couple things that lament can do for you. Lament is praise. A complaint against God is an accusation against him because of some flaw that you think you see in his character. A lament is an appeal to God based on his character. You get two examples of this. Job... 
Job is appealing to God. God, help me. Answer me. Talk to me. You're good and you're powerful and you love me and I don't know why this is happening. God, answer me. That's a lament. It's an appeal to God. We're praising God. Israel in the wilderness, you know what Israel did in the wilderness? God rescues Israel, right? He sends plague upon plague upon Egypt. Finally, the Pharaoh says, go. And they, I mean, they go. They plunder Egypt. They've been protected from all of these things. They go, we're free. Woo, we're not slaves anymore. We don't have to collect straw and make bricks and build pyramids. We're all good. And then they get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh decides he's mad at him and he wants to chase him and kill him. And so you got chariots and armies behind him and a big Red Sea. I don't think it's red, but it's called the Red Sea. But the big sea right in front of him. What do they do? God, you're a murderer. You're a liar. You brought us out here to kill us. What, weren't there enough of graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here so we could all die in the desert? That's not lament, that's complaining. But a real lament... A real lament is saying, God, I know you and I trust you and I'm broken and this doesn't make sense. When you read through the Psalms, poems that are praises to God, two-thirds of the Psalms, 66% are laments. Heartfelt, emotional, honest laments that say, God, I have no idea what you're doing right now, but it doesn't look good. A lament is proof of the relationship. You lament to God because you trust God and because you know he's powerful and you know he cares about you. You ever been woken up in the morning by your kids climbing into bed way too early? Like way too early. It's because they trust you. It's annoying. It's because they trust you. Why else would they come to you and ask? Dr. Moore wrote a book um, um, about us being adopted into God's family. And in the book, he uses the illustration of the time he and his wife were in Russia um, at an orphanage where they were pursuing their own adoption. He said, what was eerie is that in the orphanage, no babies cried. And it wasn't because they, they didn't have needs. It was because they learned they wasn't anybody there that cared. We cry out when we trust that God is listening. When you lament, it's proof of your relationship with him. Lament is a pathway to intimacy with God. When you lament to God, you're telling him that you trust him with your pain. When you lament to somebody else, when you give somebody else the full range of your emotion, your frustration, and your pain, when you can trust them with that, that's an indicator that you have a real intimate relationship with that person. Lament is a prayer for God to act. When you lament, you're not just venting. You're asking God to act. And you actually 
one of the things is you actually have hope that he will. You know how I said two-thirds of the Psalms were laments? You know how most of them end? Most of them end with a commitment to praise again. When I was younger and I first was reading the Bible, I was really confused and mad at the Psalms. One, I don't love poetry. Right? I don't love poetry. Some of you love poetry. You probably love the Psalms. I don't love poetry. And there are 150 of them. There's a lot of them. I haven't read that many poems outside of the Bible in my whole life. Unless they started with roses are red, violets are blue. We're packing up at the house. This has nothing to do with anything. Again, it won't last much longer, but like this and then next week. Uh, but here's the deal. Packing up these things, and, and I apparently had this weird relationship with my grandma because I have this, this card that I wrote her. I'm assuming one Valentine's Day, and on the envelope it said, I love you. Do you love me too? And then on the inside, it said, roses are red, violets are blue, right? And then you flip it over, and it would said, but nothing is sweeter than my grandma. I wasn't ever good at poetry. <laughs> like, that's a thing. I wasn't good at it. But, but in the Psalms, the reason I used to have such a hard time with them is because you would read these things about all the, he's questioning God. Where are you, God? What's going on, God? Why are you so slow to act? What's going on? Deliver me, save me, rescue me, help me, help me, help me. And then at the end, David or whoever the psalmist is would say something like, and then I will praise you. And, and to me, it always had this flavor of, if you come through for me, then I will praise you and worship you. The implication being, if you don't, then I won't. That was before I understood that these were psalms of lament. And, and, and what lament does, right, is lament says everything that my heart needs to say. But then it ends with this promise of praise. And the promise is, God, I know you're God. And I know you're in control. And I know you love me. And so, yeah, I will praise you because I know that all of this will work out. So then I will come to your house and your temple and I will stand at your altar and I will tell everybody about you with confidence because I know it'll happen. That's what Job does when Job laments, right? He's praying for God to act. God, act, help, answer, fix it, make it better. But I know it's going to work. I know my Redeemer lives. And I know that I will stand before you. Right? Though you slay me, I know I will come out as pure gold. Like Job is lamenting, and, and this lament is a prayer. Here's the last thing lament is. I know we're, we're getting there, I promise. Lament can be participation in the pain of others. You want to love people really well? I know you do, right? I know it's a heart's desire of everybody that calls Blessed Hope home because we've talked about this so much. We learn it um, in, in, in every class we have and in every outreach event and in everything we try to teach that we want to love people well. We want to love those that call um, the church home. We want to love them well. We want to love our neighbors and our community well. One of the ways you do that 
is to participate in their pain. Not try to fix it. Right? Don't help God. You don't have answers. Don't act like you do. But when you can sit with somebody, when you can cry with somebody, when you can put their needs ahead of your own, when you can mourn with those that mourn, when you can have compassion and empathy and connection, when you can lament with them, when you can ask God on their behalf, you're loving them well. Lament has power. It's praise. It's praising this God that we have a relationship with. It's intimate. It's asking God to act on our behalf and assuming that he will. And it's participating in the pain of others so that nobody has to do this alone. I can't promise you, Christian, listen to me. I can't promise you that this life will be pain-free. In fact, I can pretty much promise you that it won't be. But if you're part of a church that loves you and cares for you, here's what I can promise you. You won't have to be in that pain by yourself. You won't have to. So that's it. That's what we got. Jeremiah looking over a devastated Israel, a devastated Jerusalem, a devastated temple. He spent his life ministering to these people, loving these people, and everything is gone. Here's what he said. The thought of my suffering and my homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet, see, a lament is an in-the-meantime experience. That's what it is. In the meantime, I will lament, right? It wasn't always this way. It won't always be this way. In the meantime, I will lament. But in this, I will have hope. I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And Jeremiah says this, I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. Your laments are your in the meantime prayers. Don't fight them. Don't wish them away. Don't ever allow yourself to feel that your faith is weak because you're in it. Just lament. But understand that on the other side of your lament is hope. Remember, say with Jeremiah, great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Say to yourself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious and kind, and we just love you so much. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, that you um, continue to give us hope even in the midst of suffering. God, in, 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 I thank you for the... <laughs> this is weird, but I, I thank you for the suffering of Job, a real person who went through real suffering beyond measure. 
God, and while we don't know why you do the things that you do or you allow the things that you allow, here's what we know. You won't waste any of it, God, and you didn't waste Job's suffering, but you've used it to instruct us and to teach us and to help us understand our own difficulties. God, I pray for for the body here at Blessed Hope. Specifically, I pray for those that are in the middle of lament. Because, God, I, I know that there's many And I know that it's real and that it feels heavy. And God, I pray. I pray for those in the body that are called to come alongside and share that pain. God, I pray that nobody here has to do that alone. And God, we look together in anticipation of that day. God, when all clouds will flee at your presence. And that you will make all things new and you will fulfill your promises, and you will wipe away every single tear. And we look forward in anticipation to that. We love you and praise you. Amen.